Thank you, Wendy, and thank you, worship team, for leading us in praising our Lord. Uh, super excited for this morning, been looking forward to the opportunity to teach this morning and open the Word of God with the people of God. And uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series in the book of Colossians, picking up where we left off last week. And uh, as you know, we've been in this series for a few weeks, and we've covered a little bit of ground, but man, have we unpacked a lot of truth. And it's been a very encouraging time in the scriptures. And so, very excited to be able to teach and be able to be a part of the teaching this morning. It's a huge privilege, and I, I thank Pastor Mike for it. Uh, as I was getting ready and thinking about this morning, uh, one of the things that came to my mind is the, just the absolute blessing of gift cards. Right? Gift cards. Uh, the opportunity to receive a gift card for someone, to be able to go and just spend it on something you would like. Uh, when Naomi and I were in college at Moody, uh, I did not have a lot of money. And so date nights usually involve a cup of coffee and study, and that was about it. And so we always just loved when a, a, a letter came in the mail from a family member that included a gift card. And uh, she had an aunt or has an aunt who was and is extremely generous. And uh, oftentimes we would get gift cards from her and Naomi would share them with me. And it's funny how splitting a burrito bowl could be such an amazing thing, right? Because now I want my own, right? But the thing about a gift card that's so neat is that it's something that's already been paid for and it's given to the recipient with the hope of being able to use it in the future. And uh, last week, Naomi was picking up lunch for, her, for us, and she went to the Panera, and she was ordering some sandwiches. And when it came time to pay, she handed a gift card into the window for them to receive payment. And just a few moments later, they hand it right back to her and say, Miss, we can't accept this form of payment. And Naomi is like, well, well why not? And it turns out that my wife had handed them a Starbucks gift card instead of a Panera gift card. And my sweet wife and I had a lot of fun with that and got, got a good giggle out of it. But it kind of helps drive a point, I think, that, that a gift card is extremely inclusive in the sense that it can be bought and it can be given to anyone. But it's extremely exclusive in the sense that it only can be used in a specific means. The heresy in Colossae was to say that you can have forgiveness, you can have relationship with God apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they're coming in and they're distorting what the truth of the gospel says. And so Paul is writing this letter to remind them of who Jesus is and that he indeed is the only means for them to have life eternal. And so this morning I'm excited to unpack this text. And all, in essence, we're going to be learning and, and being reminded of what is the gospel and how is it that it is moved and how is it shared from people to people. Uh, as we get started, if you could open in your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together here in just a moment. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And here's what our text says this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, 
just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity and privilege it is that we have to open your word. Lord, I thank you that we can with full confidence read this word knowing that it's been preserved and that it's reliable and it's authoritative. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and in our minds today. Remind us of the beauty and the truthfulness of the gospel. And we ask and we pray for your help and your guidance in this work. In Jesus' name, amen. As Pastor Mike's mentioned uh, in recent weeks, uh, the welcome of Paul to this church in Colossae is surprisingly warm and very familial for a group of people that he has never seen or met. So we know that, that Paul has a desire to minister to this group of people, though he has never met them. And, and right now, Paul is in a jail cell in Rome, sometime between 60 and 62 AD, when he's writing this letter. And we know that the reason he's writing this letter is because there is a teaching circulating in Colossae that is threatening the health of the church. This teaching, in fact, is, is so dangerous that it has the ability and the potential ability of pulling people from their true faith in Christ to return to the pagan beliefs that they once held, into the pagan practices that they once were engaged in. And so Paul is writing this letter to remind them of what they have already heard long before he wrote the letter to help distill what is true and what is not true. And so what is happening in this teaching is that is circulating is this idea that Jesus is good, but he is not enough. Jesus is good to learn from, he's good to follow, but at the end of the day, he is not sufficient. He's not enough. So this heresy is a mixture of various belief systems that are coming together, which makes it all the more dangerous. You have a component that is Jewish, and so there is an observance of the law and of rituals, and there is a practicing of, of the different holidays and the different things that were important to them, but primarily there was a focus on the works of the law. Then you have a component that is philosophical. It's this belief and conviction that you have to come to this deeper hidden knowledge that only an elite group of people have access to. And if you don't have that, you can't have God. And then furthermore, there's asceticism, which is this idea of harming one's body or depriving one's body because they believed that matter itself was wicked and evil. And then lastly, just to bring it all together, there was the worship of angelic beings, angels. And this is perhaps the most wicked portion of this heresy because they taught that in order to have relationship to God, you had to worship through an intermediary of an angel which is to set aside the deity of Christ. Jesus is the only one we need to have access to the Father. Right? He is the only one who gives us that means to connect with the Father. And so this heresy is threatening the life and vitality of this church. And so Paul is writing, and what is at stake ultimately in this passage is that a group of false teachers have come into a local area where the gospel has already been spoken. The truth of the gospel has already been taught, it's already been shared, it's already been accepted, and the false teachers come in after to try to distort and to pervert what the truth is. And so, the clear message of the false teachers is that if you're going to trust in Jesus, that's fine, but you have to add works. You have to add philosophy, you have to add the worship of angels. Jesus can't get you what you need. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to deal with this heresy. He's writing this letter to remind the church of what is true, what they have already received. And so what is our hope and what does it mean that it has been laid up in heaven? Before I get there, a few reminders uh, before we get going this morning. Pastor Mike has taught about the first thing is that we have the ability to become saints, not by any work of ours not by anything that we do, not a family we're born into, an area of the world. We become saints because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We are set aside. We are sanctified because he is set aside. He is sanctified. We participate in his righteousness. And so we don't become saints by anything we do. We become saints by believing in his finished work. And then secondly, we learn that faith is trusting in what God has done, primarily through the personal work of Jesus, through his death and burial and resurrection, When we look at what he has done, we build in our trust of who he is, resulting in love right now. And so when I'm mindful of what God has done for me, I am filled with love towards him and other people. And then lastly, Pastor Mike talked about this idea of hope. That hope isn't just this wishful thinking that things are going to go well. Hope is rooted in the word of truth and in the person of Jesus. And the hope is this, that God is going to come through with his promises in the future just like he has done in the past. And so what we have is we have this reminder that you have faith because of what Christ has done. You have love as a result of that. And then you're looking forward to this hope. So what is our hope and what does it mean that it has been laid up in heaven? Four points I want to make this morning about the gospel. The first is the hope of the gospel. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the, um, goodness, help me out here. You guys are going to have to remind me what I'm going to talk about. The, uh, the nature, thank you, of the gospel, the movement of the gospel, and the result of the gospel. So let's begin in verse 5, talking about the hope. He says this, Because of the hope laid up in heaven for you, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so, again, what is our hope, and what does it mean that it's laid up in heaven? When I was a teen in the teen class back at the church I grew up at, this is mid-2000s, there was a song that we loved. Right? And we just, we just went crazy over it. And I want to give full disclosure before I comment on this song that I enjoyed it very much. In fact, we made motions to it, and we would sing, and we would do the motions, and we just thoroughly enjoyed it. But what I want you to think about is what is missing in this song. The name of the song is Big House. And let me read a few lyrics for you. Come and go with me to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big house. It's my father's house. A fun song, nonetheless, and it gets the imagination working, right? But what is missing in this song? Jesus is nowhere mentioned in this song. It is as though that we can... Trust in Jesus as the means to get to heaven, but then we're done with him, right? And I know that that's probably not the intention of the song, but the reality is if we're not careful, we can buy into this idea that Jesus is just simply how I'm getting there, but I'm going to have nothing to do with him once I get there. And here's the reality. The scriptures teach very clearly. In John 17, 3, he says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent The word know here refers to a personal experience, growing to know someone through personal experience. What I'm trying to say is that heaven is not heaven without Jesus. There is no such thing as heaven without the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so when we buy into this idea that heaven's going to be after my image and it's going to be this awesome place where I'm going to get to do all these fun things, we fail to see that heaven is that which saves us from the best life here on earth, right? We think we know what the best life is, but we're going to go and we're going to enjoy him. That is what heaven is. We're going to be with him. We're going to worship him. All right? And so this song, is, in effect, can, can cause us to think that we can have heaven and the enjoyments of heaven without Christ. And so what we're looking at this morning is what is this hope? What is our hope? Hope here refers to the thing hoped for, meaning it's a person. We're, we're referring to the person of Jesus. He is where our hope lies. We look forward to when he will bring us to where he is. But here's the thing. The Colossians are being fed a lie that though Jesus is a good thing to think about and it's good to listen to what he taught, he in himself is not sufficient. You have to add all these other things in the mix in order to have rightness with God. The problem is that they, that they are resting on a foundation um, that has, is shaky. Right? They do not have clarity of how we can know God. They don't have clarity of what it means to be right with God. We only find that in the word of truth. And so Paul reminds them that their present experience of faith and love were resting firmly in the foundation of what Jesus had done for them. It has nothing to do with what you and I can do. It has nothing to do with what we fail to do. It has everything to do with what he has done. That is where our hope lies. And theologically speaking, we talk about it's up in heaven. It's this idea of the already but not yet. It's to say that because Jesus is seated at, seated at the right hand of the Father, I am represented before the Father. I may not be in heaven right now, but I am securely waiting for the realization of that day. Because Jesus died, he resurrected, and he ascended on high. Because Jesus is righteous, I am considered righteous. Right? And so I get to share in his inheritance. My hope is laid up in heaven, safe and secure, because that is where my Lord is. Look what he says in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus never ceases to advocate on our behalf. We have him advocating for us at the right hand of the Father right now, and that is why we can have confidence that we will join him in heaven. Furthermore, in Colossians 3, he writes, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so my life does not belong to me. If I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus, my life is hidden in his life. Right? He represents me before the Father. Paul also says, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so Paul's reminding the believers in Colossae that, hey, look, you've heard these things before. Like, you've heard that Jesus is the means to be connected back to the Father long before I wrote this letter. And the thing is, Warren Wearsby writes about this, that heresy always comes in after truth has been delivered to pervert it. Heresy always comes in after the gospel has been delivered in order to twist it and to change it. And so Paul is saying, remember what you heard, right? Remember what you heard. And so he's saying that the rest solely is on Jesus and in the word of truth. And so in the Old Testament, Douglas Moo talks about this. The word of truth is a phrase that refers to something, a message, or something that is written or said that is reliable and that is authoritative. Right? And so the word of the Lord is a phrase that you'll have very often. And it refers to authenticity, reliability of the message. And it will be taken seriously or ignored based on the source. How many of you heard, uh, maybe you've gotten feedback from someone and someone you love basically said to you, hey, consider the source. Right? Consider the source. 
a message is only as good as its source. And that is why we can have confidence that our hope is laid up in heaven because the Lord has said so through his word. We have confidence in him through his word, right? And so it's a reliable, it's an authoritative, and it's a sufficient word that we have hope that is waiting for us in heaven because we have a Lord who is resurrected and waiting in heaven for us. Here's the, here's the point of the first one. The gospel is the good news that our hope does not rest in our abilities to keep the law, to keep observances of rituals, or to have some special knowledge, or to figure out how to worship angelic beings, but it's the firmly rooted in the person and the work of Jesus as revealed through scripture. That is where our hope is, and that is why it's secure in heaven. The second thing this morning is uh, we talk about the nature of the gospel, the nature of the gospel. So Colossians 1, 6a This is what we find in verse 6. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. And so again, I think what's important is in this verse, Paul is sharply contrasting uh, the truth of the gospel against what is being taught by the false teachers. What Paul is saying is, hey, the, the, the word of truth has come to you, but it's also gone out into the whole world. And what heresy is saying in this local area is that you have to follow this way of thinking and this way of truth. But what we find is that the gospel has its impact in that area and in all areas it goes. The gospel overpowers, overthrows this false teaching. And so he says, which has come to you first. This is a Greek term with the idea meaning to come alongside of you, to sit next to you. Uh, Wiest basically says in, in his, he quotes, the gospel has snuggled close up to the Colossian saints and they have taken it into their hearts. And what is the idea being communicated here? The idea is that the gospel is available. The gospel is available to the people in Colossae, and it is going out, and it is available to those others in the world. It is not something that an elite group of people get to dictate and get to say who gets to have it. Right? So the gospel has come to you just as it's going into the world. It's almost like he's saying, look, uh, you're special, but you're not that special. The gospel's coming to you, but it's also going outside. It's going further. Uh, in the knowledge, Bible knowledge commentary, we find that heresies are local and harmful, but truth is universal and helpful. Truth is universal and it is helpful. The next thing he says is the whole world. And obviously this, the, the, it's kind of thought of as being hyperbole in the sense that, yes, it's spreading. It's going to various regions. It's going to various peoples. Right? It's not, again, to this close-knit group of people who have this special knowledge. So the gospel has come to you as it's going to others throughout the world. It is not limited to a small, elite group of people. And as we look at other texts in scripture, we find that the gospel is going throughout the world. Acts chapter 19, verse 10 says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How quickly I can forget the amazing nature of the gospel that it is no longer just for the Jew, but it is now for the Greek, right? It is for the Jewish person, it is for the Gentile. And so it's gone into this area and it's reached the people. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God in the early church was met with much resistance, much persecution, and yet the word of God prevailed. The gospel prevails. Everywhere it goes, it's welcome. And it overthrows and prevails over anything else that it encounters. First Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then Philippians 1, 12 through 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So to summarize all these texts, I've just shared with you. The first one is there is this movement of the gospel in Asia. And then secondly, it goes into Ephesus and all the people who were prior practicing witchcraft are taking their books and they're throwing them to a big pile in the middle of the city square and burning them. Right? And then thirdly, in Thessalonica, you have people who have turned from idols to the truth of the gospel. And then lastly, the Apostle Paul himself says that the very people who are tasked with keeping me in jail, the gospel has now reached them. The gospel does not know boundaries. There is no restriction on where the gospel can go. There is no geographical place it can't penetrate. The gospel has its free course, and it goes to you, and it goes throughout the world. He also says in this text that it is bearing and it is increasing, bearing fruit and increasing. So not only does the gospel have a universal playing field in that it can go to all people of all nations, all tongues, all tribes, not only does it have a universal ability to travel, but when it comes into, the per- into a person's life, it has the ability to transform and to create fruit and to bear fruit out. He says that the whole world is seeing this. And the evidence, as mentioned earlier, fruit-bearing seed of the gospel is that we have faith, we have love, and we have hope. And we know throughout Scripture that as, as we are confident in what God has done for us, that leads to a welling up love for him that overflows to others, and then we continue to look forward to the hope that we have. Both bearing fruit and increasing, both are in the middle voice, which talks about the intrinsic nature, the intrinsic power of the gospel. Basically saying that the gospel is a reproducing organism. All you have to do is you plant it and you water it and it works. It bears fruit. And not only does it bear fruit, but that it increases. And so you and I, we have confidence with the gospel because it's not up to me to get the results. It's up to me to plant and to help water. And the word of God through the gospel creates fruit. Right? And so that is what is happening here. Um, I, was, as I was talking to Naomi about this, and as you know, um, I, there was a few stories shared about my ability to do yard work last week. Uh, her and I have been doing yard work as we've moved into our home over the years. And uh, the iris, is it iris bush? Is that what you call it? Iris plant. There we go. See, she's right here. She's got me. The iris plant we found was extremely difficult to remove. Because as you dig it out and as you think you've gotten it, it kind of just comes back. And sometimes it doesn't just come back, it spreads out. And what you have to do is they have these bulbs that you have to get real deep and you have to get them all out and it's a real pain in the neck, right? But in a very interesting, similar sense, the gospel, though it may be attacked and though there may be a local area where heresy is gaining influence, it can never flush out the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel prevails and when it enters into a person's life, it immediately begins bearing fruit. It says in the next phrase, and understood the grace of God in truth. Obviously, I always like to go Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when we're talking about salvation and how does it come to a person. We're told in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And so it is a work of God's grace that I can receive the gospel. It has nothing to do with me. I can't do anything to earn it, and thank goodness I can't do nothing to lose it. He has done this work. It is by grace. It is a gift of God, not merited by me. And so this gift of God, this grace, is necessary when we're teaching the gospel. A gospel that is separated from grace is no gospel. Because then it leans back into what Caleb can do. It leans back into the area of the world Caleb is from. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the power of God given as a gift to us for salvation. As you know, I deserve judgment. I deserve separation. I deserve shame. But instead, I am given the opportunity to have relationship to the Father through the Son. That is grace by faith in Christ. The gospel ceases to be the power of God under salvation, like I said, when we defile it and set aside the grace component of it. And so what the heresy was, what they were doing is they're saying, you need Jesus plus works. You need Jesus plus angels. You need Jesus plus philosophy. And what the gospel says is you need Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. The next phrase he says in verse, uh, let's see here. At the end of verse 7, it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. Before I move on there, I notice it's very interesting in verse 6 and 7. It's very down to earth, right? You've heard and understood the grace of God and truth. You have learned it from Epaphras. So in order for someone to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, they must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So therefore, for someone to hear it, someone has to go tell them. Right? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10 lays out this whole, uh, well, that, that lays out it's by the mouth we confess and if we believe in the heart. But later, I'm just going to go instead of trying to paraphrase, good grief. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, this is what we see, or verses 14, I'm sorry. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And down to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so very basic. The, the gospel is shared by normal means. It is heard, it is understood, and it is learned. The idea of understanding is it's gaining a full knowledge of, a full appreciation of. And I think that's where the, the grace component comes in. When I fully am aware of the grace of God then I think I understand what he's done for me. I understand the gospel. And then thirdly, the idea of learn. The word learn is this idea of it, it's, it's gaining knowledge by watching how someone lives. And so Paul references Epaphras. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so Epaphras has not only taught them the gospel, he has lived the gospel. He has demonstrated what a life that has been transformed looks like. And so he is telling them to keep these things in mind. Paul ties all of this back in for us by reminding us of just the simple need for us to open our mouths and tell other people about who Jesus is. Uh, there's, a, um, in, in, er, there's an illustration I want to share uh, to, about a life belt. Uh, there is a gentleman named Elgin Staples of Akron, Ohio, and uh, he was saved by someone that was over 8,000 miles away from him. Uh, he was serving abroad, the cruiser USS Astoria, and in, 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 in the course of, of his work, he was, their, their ship was hit, and he was thrown overboard, and the life vest that he was wearing, the life belt, excuse me, that he was wearing kept him from drowning, it kept him afloat. He was later picked up by a rescue boat, put back on the same boat he was on originally, then that boat sunk, he was back in the water, being preserved by the very same life belt, 
and then ultimately he was rescued and put onto another ship. And, years, and, and later on as he returns home and he begins to share what had happened, what he finds is that his mother had begun working during this wartime effort in the uh, Firestone, um, oh my goodness, I'm trying to go off my top of my head here, I'm sorry everybody, the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. And she began helping them as they built these life belts. And what they found is that she was actually an inspector of these life belts and that she actually had overseen the inspection of the very belt that he wore. And so this mother, way over in Akron, Ohio, is overseeing the project of these life belts, doing this work, not knowing how it's going to affect people and ends up saving her own child's life. And I think in a similar regard, Epaphras is very similar to this. He is doing a faithful work. He is being a minister of Christ on their behalf. And we don't always see the impact of the gospel working in the people's lives around us. But we can be assured that as we serve faithfully, as we plant, and as the, the seed is watered, that God is the one who is at work. So, the final component of the gospel to cover this morning is the result of the gospel. I feel like I skipped something. Did I skip something back there? Man, alive, y'all. Put the notes in the wrong order and it gets you all messed up. So, I said the nature of the gospel... I said the movement of the gospel. No, this is it. This is the last one. We're good. We're good. You're all like, praise the Lord. It's 1153. This guy keeps flipping through his notes. All right, so the result of the gospel. Colossians 1.8. And has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so as I just back up real quick, he's talking about Epaphras being a faithful, uh, being a beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Faithful meaning he is dependable. Right? He is someone they can lean into. In essence, what Paul is saying, he is contrasting the ministry of Epaphras with the ministry of the false teachers. He's saying, hey, look, what I'm writing to you, what I'm teaching, I put my full weight behind Epaphras. He's faithful. He will teach you what you need to know. And so Epaphras is this faithful servant of Christ on the people's behalf. And the word uh, minister is actually the word diakonos. We get the word deacon, which means servant. So he is a faithful servant on Christ's behalf to the people. And what we find in discipleship is that it does involve cognitive teaching, but more importantly, it involves life on life. It involves investing in someone's life. It involves serving them. It involves demonstrating a love for them while accompanying with the truth of the word of God. And so the result of the gospel that we find is that he has made known to us is that your love in the spirit. And so he is complimenting that their work, that, that these people have received the gospel and it is evident that they've received it because the love of Christ is evident in them. We know that in the gospel that we're told by Jesus that uh, people will know that you are with me. I'm paraphrasing, right? They will know that you are with me by your love for one another. And so as believers, we should be of all people characterized by an incredible ability to love. Now, love is always accompanied with truth, but love is this ability to Look at someone across the table who comes from a different background, who maybe has a different way of seeing things, and the ability to love and to serve that person. And as we come together as a body and as we serve and love one another, I believe we have the opportunity to then serve and love those outside of our body. If we can do it effectively in here, it's going to overflow, it's going to spill over out there. And what he's saying is that you have this love from the Spirit and what this is referring to is a Spirit-empowered love from God and through God. When a person receives the person and work of Jesus, they also receive the Spirit of God into them. The Spirit of God comes, he indwells, he seals, and he begins to cultivate the fruit of God in us. One of the key fruits being love. 
right? And we have this supernatural ability to love people that we would have otherwise had very great difficulty of loving. And so we, they have, they've been marked with this ability to love one another. And because of this love, Paul has received this message and he is encouraged. And so when a group of distinct individuals can selflessly serve one another and can love one another, it's going to make an impact for the gospel in this place. And I think one of the things that almost always in my mind is clear about Christian love is that it is sacrificial and it gives. It's not about the individual. It's not about me. It's about giving to someone else. The false teachers in this area, it was all about getting a part of their exclusive group. It was all about them. So heresy at times isn't just, it isn't always just a false teaching. At times heresy is the calling of people to oneself away from the body and away from Christ. And so that is what these false teachers have done. They've taught false information. They've called people away from the body and Paul has dealt with them accordingly. And so the gospel, the hope of the gospel is that our resurrected Lord uh, has given us hope and that through him we have the ability to love one another in a way that we never could without him. The bottom line this morning, as we come to a close here, um, actually I have another story. In closing, there was a man named Charlie Plum. All right, you guys want to hear about Charlie, don't you? You with me? Okay. Charlie Plum, he served in the Vietnam War as a fighter pilot, and during his 75th mission, he was shot down by a surface-to-air missile. Uh, in the course of being shot down, as the aircraft was falling to the earth, he was able to eject safely out of the aircraft and land, only to be quickly captured and uh, imprisoned in a, in, a, in a war camp for six years. Uh, he later is released, and he's sent back to the States, and uh, years later, he's enjoying a meal with his wife, and a gentleman approaches him who saw him from afar and recognized him, spits all the information back to him. Hey, you're, you're Charlie. You were in Vietnam. You were shot down. You were POW. And he says, yeah, how do you know all these things about me? And he says, I'm the one who packed your parachute. All right? I'm the one who packed that parachute for you. And so they were on the same ship. This gentleman packed the parachute that ultimately saved the life of the fighter pilot who had to eject. And the idea that we want to land and that we want to leave you with this morning is whose parachute are you packing? Who are you pursuing? Who are you investing in? Who are you praying for? Because at times, ministry can be very monotonous, and sometimes we don't see the impact, and that can be very discouraging. But as we faithfully serve, as we plant that seed, as we water it, we know that the gospel is fruit-bearing, meaning it bears fruit wherever it goes, and it, and it, and it impacts people wherever it is. All we got to do is feed, is give that seed, feed it, and let the gospel do its work. The bottom line is that the gospel points us to our hope in Jesus. It's universal in power and nature. It's moved from person to person through discipleship. And the result of the gospel taking root is a God-empowered love for one another. Let's go ahead and let's stand together as we close this morning in a word of prayer. And we'll have a song here as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we thank you for the gospel and its work in us and through us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart and a desire to see others come to know who you are. Lord, as we close this time in song, we pray that you would be magnified. And we thank you for the opportunity to know you. And we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.